Thank you, Steve. It is especially good to worship with you this morning in view of the text that we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking in the book of Acts this morning. We are emerging from a months-long study in Exodus, and now we're going to move into Acts, uh, Exodus from the Hebrew Scriptures, Acts in the New Testament, if you're not all that familiar with the, with the Bible. So that's what we're doing, Acts. Specifically, we're going to be doing the sermons in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, to understand how these particular individuals preach the gospel in their context so that we can understand the gospel in our context and how to relate it in our context as well. So thus we are calling this series Witness. We're calling the series Witness. A series in the, the book of Acts, we'll be hearing from, from a few different preachers, not only uh, me and uh, Paul and Dan, but a few others as well. So that's something to look forward to. So I don't know if you paid attention to the 2020 census, which came out uh, concerning the Bay Area. And in the Bay Area, Asians outnumber white people as a racial group here in the Bay Area, according to the 2020 census. Now, let me assure you, such was not the case when I was growing up here in the 1960s and the 1970s. I went to Awalt High School, which is now called Mountain View High School. And uh, to, to uh, assure myself that I was remembering things correctly, I went back a couple days ago and looked at my high school yearbook for my senior year and looked at all those senior pictures that they put in those yearbooks, and I counted 330 photos. Everybody looking nice in their graduation gowns and all that kind of stuff. 330 photos, seven of them weren't white. Everyone else was white. So that was the context that I grew up in in Mountain View. Now, of course, things have changed significantly since then. The whole world seemingly has come to the Silicon Valley. And so the diversity that is here is absolutely amazing, way different from the place that I grew up in. Now, I not only grew up here, I was born here. Not only was I born here, but my roots go back generations in the Bay Area. In fact, my roots go back all the way to the 1870s. When the first grant moved from Pennsylvania to San Francisco, that wasn't that long after the gold rush. So, as someone with that sort of pedigree, if you will, that sort of history, what do I say about all these newcomers who have come into the Silicon Valley? It wasn't even the Silicon Valley back then. It was the Santa Clara Valley. What do I say to all these newcomers who have flooded my home? I say this, one word. Hallelujah. That's what I say. Alleluia. That sounds about five words, but it's one word. Alleluia. Why do I say that? The reason will become clear as we work through our text this morning. So we're going to look at the first sermon in Acts, in Acts chapter 2, but we need a little context here. Jesus has risen from the dead. We see that in all four gospels. And after he has risen from the dead in Acts chapter 1, he gathers his disciples who are now apostles, his sent ones, and he says to them, you are going to be my witnesses. But what you need to do is you need to wait here in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. So that's what Jesus commissions his apostles to do. Now, indeed, they wait in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit comes with power. 
The Holy Spirit comes in visible ways and ways that can be heard as well, manifestations that resemble wind and fire. And not only that, the Holy Spirit fills 120 early followers of Jesus so that they are able to speak in languages that they themselves do not know. They haven't learned these languages, they're able to speak in these languages. Now there were in Jerusalem at that time, people from all over the known world listening to and watching everything that's going on. And uh, they were both Jews and proselytes. That would be Gentile converts to the God of Israel. And they are witnessing all of these things that are happening to these apostles. And so they want to understand what does this mean? Because they're able to hear the apostles speak and the others speak in languages that they can understand their native tongues. They don't understand how this has happened. What's going on here? They want to understand, at least some of them do, what does this mean? Now, Peter is going to answer that question in two parts. What does this mean? So turn, if you will, if you want the Bibles in front of you, to page 910. We're going to be working through Acts chapter 2, most of the chapter anyway. And for the first part of the answer, what Peter does is he calls forth the prophet Joel the prophet Joel from the Hebrew scriptures, to tell them that this, is, this was expected by the prophet Joel. So let's look at the first part of that, shall we? Uh, beginning at verse 16, there's Peter's words. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The key operator, the key word here is all. The spirit is being poured out on all flesh. That's what's going on. Peter's telling them that the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who is God himself, is being poured out on all flesh. That is all followers of Jesus. Not as in the days of old when the Spirit came upon certain individuals such as prophets and kings in a more isolated, incremental way. No, now the Spirit is being poured out on all of God's people. So that's what's going on here. And so you've got the young and the old. You've got uh, male and female. You've got servants. You've got uh, kind of everybody in the mix here, which is anticipating what's going on later in the book of Acts in which, this, in which the gospel goes out really to the Gentiles as well. So it's partially already, but later it's going to be more full. So the timing of these events is kind of sequential. So they're prophesying right now. They're speaking the mighty works of God. That's prophesying. And later in the book of Acts, you see some visions and you see some dreams. And there are a few things that haven't happened yet still to this day like the moon turning to, uh, you know, the sun being changed, the moon being changed in blood and vapor and smoke and all of this. So this is events that are connected with the final day of the Lord in which Jesus Christ comes back. Not necessarily that uh, Joel or Peter are speaking of these things and literal kinds of things happening, these cosmic disturbances, because in the first case, Joel, as a prophet, was anticipating a judgment in his day that took the form of a locust plague. 
So he speaks of a locust plague in these very bizarre sorts of terms, blood and vapor of smoke. Not that there's blood and vapor of smoke, obviously with a locust plague, but he speaks in this way. And that's what some of the prophets did in this apocalyptic imagery that makes you know that something of cosmic significance is going on. So we are looking forward to the day, the great and magnificent final day of the Lord in which Christ comes back, finally vanquishes evil, and then saves, in a final sense, those who are his, those who have committed their lives to him. The important thing to note in all of this, not only that the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, but that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, all. Everyone has an opportunity to be saved if they want to be saved and commit themselves to Christ and they will be delivered from the judgment of the end. So what does it mean that all these people are speaking in different languages? It means that the spirit has been poured out. Now this in Acts 2 represents a reversal of Genesis chapter 11. So what happens in Genesis chapter 11? All the people come together and they want to build a tower. They come together, they unite to build this tower to storm the gates of heaven and take over. What does God do in Genesis 11? He confuses their languages so that they can't speak to each other anymore. They can't understand one another and they are scattered. They have to abandon this evil project. Fast forward to Acts chapter two, what's going on here? Miraculously, now people are able to understand one another. What is God doing? He's bringing people back together. He is uniting people to create one people of both Jew and Gentile. And Gentile, of course, is everything that isn't Jew. That's what he's doing in Acts chapter two. It's a reversal. Now, as you move forward in the New Testament, you see how important this really is. You go to Romans, you go to Galatians, you go to Ephesians, and you recognize as you read carefully that God now in Jesus Christ is creating one people. Not two people, not 10 people, not a thousand, not a million people. He's creating one people, retaining, of course, all of their diversity, but uniting in Christ. There's one faith, there's one Lord, there's one baptism, there's one hope, there's one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all, right? So there is one people. God unites us in Christ. And together then, we speak of the mighty works of God. That's exactly what they were doing in Acts 2. They were speaking of the mighty works of God. We have already sung of the mighty works of God. Mighty are the works of your hands. And we're doing it together. We are united in Christ, singing of the greatness of God together. So I was born here, I grew up here, but I didn't stay here. I left, and then I came back, and I left, and then I came back, and I left, and I came back. All told, after college, I left here and came back three times. So the last time that I came back, I thought I was here for just a little while, and while I was here for just a little while, I was in this cafe in Mountain View, and I heard four different languages being spoken. So I wanted to go someplace new. I was here for a little while because I wanted to go someplace new. 
I had uh, been a a short-term missionary in Bulgaria for parts of two summers, and I was considering being a missionary, but then I realized, no, I don't think I'm cut out for that. I can barely function in my own culture, so I'd be a lousy missionary. But I did want to go someplace new, and as I was sitting in this cafe, hearing these four different languages being spoken, I said to myself, this is someplace new. So... I stayed. (laughs) A little while is going on 30 years now. It's amazing the things that God does. I thought I was born to run, but it turns out I was born to come back. I guess I should take some solace from Bruce Springsteen who wrote and sang that great anthem, Born to Run. Do you know where he lives? 10 miles away from where he grew up in New Jersey. Bruce and me. Born to run. No, we were born to come back. Now, my experience in that cafe for me was a portend of things to come because I would take up residence here in what was becoming a multicultural place and I would become a pastor in this multicultural church. So we've got um, Peter calling forth Joel. Part one of the answer, what does this mean? All of these manifestations, especially these people speaking in other languages, what does this mean? Part one, it means the spirit is being poured out. Part two, he calls forth David. So let's look at that. Acts chapter two, beginning at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders And signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That would be the Romans. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he's pretty direct here. You know, you crucified him. You handed him over to the Romans. And, uh, but he says this all happened according to the plan, the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. This was all in God's mind long beforehand. Nevertheless, that doesn't let off the hook those who handed Jesus over to be crucified. So, so Peter can say, you crucified him. And then he uh, brings forth Psalm 16, David's words in Psalm 16. I'm not going to read that particular portion of the sermon. It's enough to say that uh, David was anticipating something beyond himself. He was anticipating for himself deliverance from death, but he was also anticipating for his descendant, who would be the Messiah, deliverance from death beyond death, so that Jesus, the Messiah, was raised from the dead. Then uh, he has this interpretation of Psalm 16. Peter does anyway, beginning in Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he was set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing 
and hearing. Jesus rises from the dead. He ascends to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God on a throne. And Peter calls this actually the throne of David. David was the Jewish king and the descendant, his descendant was the Messiah who was not only the Jewish king, but the king of the whole world. So Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, the king of Israel, the king of the world is Lord over the whole world reigning right now in heaven from the throne of David. So David not only anticipated all of this in Psalm 16, he also anticipated this in Psalm 110. Let's look at that, beginning at Acts uh, 2.34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, that is God said to Jesus, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my, at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God says, I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. In other words, I'm going to subjugate everything and everyone who is opposed to your benevolent reign. I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter also says that uh, the Lord has made him both Lord and Christ. Christ being the Jewish Messiah, Lord being Lord of the world. And that's who you crucified, by the way. You crucified your king, the Jewish king, who was destined to be Lord of the world. You crucified him who is both Lord and Christ. So all of these manifestations on the day of Pentecost in Act 2 culminating in these speaking of other, in other languages, what does that mean? Peter answers the question in two parts. First, it means the spirit has been poured out Second, and this is a little more complicated, it means that Jesus has risen from the dead and he's ascended to heaven and he's reigning from heaven right now and from heaven then he poured out that which you see in here. He poured out the Holy Spirit from heaven. That is the way Peter answers their question, what does it mean? What does it mean for us? A few weeks ago, I was enjoying lunch over here with some pastors in Fellowship Hall. We get together, regional pastors on the peninsula. We get together, 20, 30 of us or so, every once in a while. Paul Taylor was there. And there was this opening question that was asked, sort of an ice-breaking question. There's always new pastors coming into this group. It's very exciting. There was this ice-breaking question that was asked, what do you like about living in the Bay Area? So the first person answered, diversity. And I was thinking that I might answer the question the same way. I was thinking that my, I might tell the story of the Mountain View Cafe where I heard four different languages being spoken and I like diversity. Then somebody else answered diversity and I realized that too many people were answering diversity so I didn't want to do that. I discovered a few years ago uh, taking this Enneagram test, or, but it's not a test really, it's kind of uh, try to understand who you are and all this kind of stuff. So I, they said I'm a number four. I'm, I'm, so that's what I am, a four. I'm an individualist. And individuals like being unique. Well, so if other people are answering diversity, I can't answer diversity. Nevertheless, you could tell that in this room, a lot of the pastors really valued diversity. However, diversity in theory can be lovely. Diversity in practice can be messy. 
There's this fellow by the name of Robert Putnam. He's a political scientist. He's probably best known for doing a study and writing a book based on that study called Bowling Alone, which chronicles how people who live in America have become increasingly isolated. They used to bowl in communities, bowl in leagues, but now more people are bowling alone. And I think he should have written a book called Bowling Not At All because I don't see any bowling alleys around here anymore. I mean, when I grew up, you could go to Fiesta Bowl in Palo Alto and you can go to Sunnyvale Bowl in Sunnyville. You could go to El Camino Bowl on Mount, in Mountain View, all in El Camino, all within about five, six, seven miles of each other. Now there's no more bowling alleys. Anyway, that's beside the point. He also did another study based on ethnic diversity, based on ethnic, ethnically diverse communities. And what he found in America is that the more ethnically diverse a community is, the less likely people in that community are to trust anyone from their next door neighbor to the mayor. Listen to what he says. In the presence of diversity, we hunker down. We act like turtles. The effect of diversity is worse than had been imagined. And it's not just that we don't trust people who are not like us. In diverse communities, we don't trust people who do look like us. Wow. And he said, of all the cities he surveyed, trust was lowest in Los Angeles. I won't make any snide comments about Los Angeles. Trust was lowest in Los Angeles, the most diverse human habitation in human history. Diversity, lovely in theory, in practice it can be messy. Again, people from all over the world have come to live in the Silicon Valley. What does this mean? Brothers and sisters, it means that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to believe the gospel, to live out the gospel, and all of its implications, because the gospel unites people. What is Jesus doing even now? He is subjugating evil. I will make your enemies your footstool. He is subjugating evil. Now it takes faith to see it in this day, to believe that Jesus actually right now is in the process of subjugating evil. How is he doing it? One of the ways is this. He has poured out his spirit on his church to unite people all across the spectrum to unite in Christ. And what do the demons want to do? You look at Ephesians. What the demons want to do is they want to exploit these differences and create divisions and create wars. And what does Christ want to do? He wants to value these differences and he wants to heal the divisions that come from these differences and unite all these people into his church, into one body. That's what Jesus wants to do. And that's what he is doing right now, not least to subjugate evil. Romans has this amazing theology. And a lot of people just, <laughs> they get stuck in the theology. It's great. It's awesome. Romans 1 through 8. But all of that is pouring into the latter chapters 
of the book of Romans. And Paul says this in the climactic verses, and this is what Romans is all about ultimately. Romans chapter 15, verses five to seven. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. See what he's saying? He's bringing together all sorts of people so that together we can, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we have been doing this morning. That's what we're going to continue to do as well. Think back to the 120 in Acts chapter 2. They are speaking in all of these other languages, but they are all doing the same thing. They are speaking of the mighty works of God. That's what we do as well. We speak of the mighty works of God. That's what I'm doing right here. And we're singing also the mighty works of God as we gather together and sing. Now let's think about our church for a minute. Peninsula Bible Church, 2023. I first came here in the 1970s. And when I did, uh, as a high school student, uh, it was uh, pretty much all white people. Pretty much all white people. It was great, but it was pretty much all white people. I came back and I uh, was a participant in the church when I came back from college in the early 80s to maybe the mid-80s, and still it was mostly white people. Then I came back as a pastor in 1994, and I noticed that things have changed, and things have increasingly changed since then, so that we are, I guess you would call us a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. We could use some more ethnicity, but we've got some, and we can be thankful for that. So that's something powerful that God is doing that is completely in line with what the gospel wants to do. It wants to unite us, to bring us together, so that the world can know that there is a place where peace reigns and where Jesus heals. And praise God, prayerfully, I hope that this can be such a place. So when we sing later on, we're gonna do, I think we're gonna do two songs at the end. If you don't like the song, sing anyway. If you don't like singing at all, sing anyway. Why? Because when we Join our voices together. We glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one voice. Then, when we sing together, when we glorify God in this way, watch Satan fall like lightning. Praise God, what an opportunity that we have in the valley and here at PBC. So how do these onlookers react to all of this in Acts chapter two? Let's uh, finish that up with uh, verse 37 and following. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter preaches this sermon. These people are cut to the heart. It pierces them right to the heart, and they're ready to respond to what Peter has said. The Spirit has been poured out on Peter. The Spirit is active, and 3,000 people respond. And they ask, what should we do? First, they ask the question, what does this mean? Peter tells them. Now they ask the question, what shall we do? And Peter tells them, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. So repent means to turn away for them, and from their version of what it means to be Israel, which was very exclusive for most of them, very narrow-minded, and, uh, and, and open up. Repent of that. Repent of your version of humanity, and then be baptized. Now, baptism is not essential for salvation. Peter will make that clear in his sermon next week in Acts chapter 3. And then later on in his letters, he talks about baptism not saving you, what baptism represents, which is an appeal to God. So, first of all, then repent, turn to Christ, that's the appeal to God, and then uh, be baptized. If you haven't been baptized yet, please do so. We're going to have a baptism, I believe, on July 16th. And then, of course, uh, come to faith, and then we'll get you wet. We would love to be able to do that if you haven't believed in Jesus yet, and you believe, and then you're going to get baptized. And uh, so all of this is going to happen. And then if they do all of this, they're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they're seeing all this happen. They're seeing this amazing stuff happen because the Spirit has been poured out. And Peter is saying, hey, you can have that too. The same Spirit that we have, you can have that too. You can receive the Holy Spirit. So Peter doesn't hold back. Twice he calls them guilty. You are guilty of crucifying the Lord. Question, is there anyone else who is guilty? Answer, yes. Who? All of us. Move forward in the New Testament and it becomes very clear that with every sin, we nailed Jesus to the cross. We too are guilty of crucifying the Messiah. That's the bad news. The bad news is this. Everyone is guilty. The good news is this. The gospel is for everyone. Notice in Acts chapter 2, the word everyone brackets things here. The gospel is for everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The promise is for everyone. Think about it. We are guilty of crucifying Jesus, but the crucifixion of Jesus is the means by which we are forgiven. And then, on top of it all, we are given the Holy Spirit who empowers us to walk in the way of Jesus. May I say to you, if you do not yet believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, do exactly what Peter tells you to do. Repent, turn away from whatever version it is you have of humanity, and, and around here, everyone is chasing, around, chasing after almost everything but God. Give that up. Turn to Christ. Offer yourself to him. Invite him into your life, and you'll be forgiven, 
and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Save yourself from this crooked generation, which is chasing after everything but God. The promise is for everyone, and the promise is for you. So how did I answer the question at the lunch a few weeks ago? What do you like about living in the Bay Area? I couldn't answer diversity because too many people had already taken that answer. So how did I answer the question? I answered it this way. For me, I like the Bay Area because it is both familiar and unfamiliar. It's familiar because I grew up here. I know my way around. There are some familiar land, landmarks, though much has changed. But there's no more bowling alleys around anymore. I used to go bowling. I can't go bowling anymore. Not that I would go bowling, but you know, I might take my kids once in a while I'll go bowling. So much has changed. But here's the main thing that's changed is all the people that have come here. That's unfamiliar to me. It's not what I grew up with, but it is what I delight in. So it's familiar and unfamiliar. And the familiarity, I think, has given me a little bit of a stability then so that you'd be able to welcome people who come here. Look how far I've had to come to get back where I started from. And where I have come to looks a lot different from the place that I started from. And I enjoy the difference. So in the last, well, probably since the beginning of the year, I've had the opportunity, I think by my count, to share Jesus with four different people. Four different people. Now, none of those people originally started here. They live here, but they came from somewhere else. And none of them looked like me. <laughs> what an opportunity we have here in the Silicon Valley, here at Peninsula Bible Church, to share Jesus with people who have come here from all over the world, and then to gather together as one people and lift up the name of Jesus and worship him together. Hallelujah. What an opportunity. One more story. The year was 1975. I played on my high school basketball team. And in one game, we went up against, we were Awalt High School in Mountain View. We went up against Ravenswood High School from East Palo Alto, which no longer exists. Their high school doesn't, doesn't exist anymore. The name of my high school doesn't exist anymore. Things have changed too much, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, back in 1975, we had a game against them. Every player on our team was white. East Palo Alto, back then, every player on their team was black. They destroyed us. <laughs> I still remember the headline in the local paper, Spartans thumped by Trojans. They beat us by 20 points. About a half hour after the game, I uh, encountered their team. About 12, all, all, their whole team, I, I encountered them. And, and, and this memory has surfaced a few times through the years, but more recently, probably because of all the social unrest we've gone through as a country in the last few years. And it's kind of it's haunted me, this particular memory that I'm going to tell you as I remember it. So I, I went up to these, these guys and... Um, I, I was trying to be friendly, uh, and I, 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 if I felt like I was transgressing some sort of invisible boundary that I didn't know existed. 
And um, I didn't know how, as a 17-year-old boy, growing up around all white people, I didn't really know how to interpret this. And through the years, when I re ever remembered it, I thought, maybe, was that, was, that, was that some fear that I was looking at in their faces? I was wondering, maybe is that, is that fear? So I was uh, meeting with Cormac the other day to talk about a few things. Cormac's our worship pastor. And uh, I, I'd, uh, I shared the story with him. I shared what happened to me back then. And I said, Cormac, can you put me in the shoes of those 16, 17, 18-year-old kids from East Palo Alto? And he patiently and lovingly explained to me what those kids must have been going through. And he said, yes, it was probably some fear in their faces. And he explained to me exactly why. I'm thankful to be here in 2023 in this community, in this church, worshiping God with all of you and learning from you. Would you please stand? Uh, Heavenly Father, I am uh, overwhelmed not only by this text, but by the whole trajectory of the New Testament. And um, thankful, appreciative, worship you because you have brought us together in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that as healing needs to happen, elsewhere and in this church, that you, Lord Jesus, would affect that healing, and especially here, that you would unite us. Thank you, Father, for the gospel, the good news of your victory over evil, which brings us together in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.